In the heart of humanity is a desire for significance, a desire for answers to some of these big questions of life. Like, why am I here? There's a desire for happiness, and there's a desire to live forever. Many of us have, at at times, have moments where we're wrestling with these big questions of life. Why am I here? Where am I going when I die? What, what does it take to experience happiness and fulfillment in this life? And there are many people searching for answers to some of those big life questions. And one of the things that I like to do in engaging in conversations, and by the way, the dart train's one of my favorite places to engage in conversations with people because people have time, you know? Uh, but one of, one of the things that I like to do is I like to start Ask a question to a stranger that's sitting by me on the dart train or a waitress or waiter. Um, ask a question like, how can I pray for you? And I'm, I'm often amazed if I ask the question, how can I pray for you? How in, in just a short period of time, so many people will just open up so much of their life and, and, and just tell us what's going on. And, and allow us to pray for them. Or another a question that I like to ask often, uh, what's your purpose in life? Like when I'm getting getting a coffee at the Starbucks or at a coffee shop somewhere or uh, I see somebody, a cashier, I'll ask somebody this question, what's your purpose in life? Why do you think you're here? And oftentimes it it opens the door for some great conversation. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, having breakfast with the brother here, brother Phil here, and there was a, a group of uh, high school, young college or high school students, and I went up and asked that question: "What would you guys say you're here for?" And I just listened to some of the answers, and and uh, some of the answers that I remember hearing was, "I'm here to to be my best, to reach my full potential, or, or do the best I can do." and and uh, that led to a 45-minute conversation with one of these young men uh, who was an atheist, who had abandoned his Catholic faith, growing up in a Catholic school, abandoned his Catholic faith, and uh, had become atheist after spending some time in the college and learning some things, Pro- probably took an intro to philosophy class. I, and, and so we had this great conversation about life and death and purpose and reason for God, and he shared his reasons why he didn't believe in a God. This past week, I had an opportunity to talk with a guy um, and asked him his purpose in life, and it just kind of it kind of stumped him. He was busy working, and it kind of stumped him. and And before I know it, he's opening up and sharing with me how he's been in and out of jail, all right, and how he's been sober for for five years now, and he's how he's been in and out of jail, and how God has changed his life. He's had children, and or he, actually, he didn't mention God, but he he mentioned being sober. And I just had this great conversation with, with this guy. And then, you know, eventually he asked me what, what I think my purpose is. And I was able to share with him, uh, what I believe the Bible teaches about that and, and why we're here. And, uh, one of my favorite, um, conversations I had was, uh, on the basketball court this week. Um, uh, there were some, some, uh, junior high students, uh, high school student, a couple junior high students. And I asked them that question. What actually one said, <laughs> one said, to make as much money as I can to get rich. That was, that was one, one of the answers. The other one was to like, to help people or something. Um, and, and, and then we, we, when I told them I was a pastor, 
they started asking me questions and they even started like raising their hand, kind of taking turns. Like, hold on, I got a question here. Uh, so one of the questions was, what kind of sins, what kind of sins will get you to hell? That was one of the questions. And there was this precious, humble, uh, junior high student. He's like, what, what kind of sins will get you to hell? And, and then the next question, what, after I answered that question and explained to him, uh, the answer to that question, next question was, well, well, how do I clear my sins? <laughs> I like how he said it to you. How do I clear my sins? And then I was able to share the gospel with him and talk to him about how Jesus clears our sins and, and just had a, just a great conversation with this young man, with these young men, three of them, and then another one popped in. And all I did was just kind of start with a question. Hey, what do you guys think you're here for? Um, and, and I just want to encourage each of us to engage in doing that, just like David was talking about, just like uh, Dick encouraged, just like Michaela mentioned uh, in, in light of going back to school. We are called to be witnesses. We're called to be ambassadors for Jesus. And there are so many people who are wrestling with these big questions about life and death, eternity, uh, why they're here and where they're going. And the Bible has answers for us. The Bible has answers for us that we can share with others. And many people don't have somebody who will listen intentionally, attentively with compassion and care. And so when you engage somebody on the street or somebody at the coffee shop or in the, the grocery store, there's many people who don't have somebody who will listen attentively with care and compassion and so if they find you or me to, to be one of those people, you may find them unloading the burdens of their heart with you right there in a moment. The text that we're looking at today is the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. And this guy had questions. He had, he had curiosity about the big questions of life. One of the big questions of life. He came up to Jesus and he came to the right person with the question. He came, he went up to the right person who, who had the, the right answer for him to his question, what must I do to in, inherit eternal life? Turn there to Mark chapter 10 verse 17. If you don't have it, uh, the Bible, then it's up on the screen. And let me pray before we, we read, read the scripture. Father, as we open up the scripture, as we see this encounter with Jesus and this young man who seemed blocked and hindered from experiencing your kingdom, we pray that you would shape in us and, and fill us with your heart of compassion and love for people that leads us to speak truth, that leads us to give them our attention, to give them our ear, to give them our time, and to engage them in conversation, gospel conversations. And would you lead us into the way of Jesus? Would you lead us into mission? And would you help us, each of us, make sure that we have the message straight before we try to get it out? that we've applied it to ourselves, that we've believed it for ourselves, and that out of the overflow of knowing you, enjoying you, and walking with you, that we would just be eager to talk about how good you are. 
and to talk about your ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said them, said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See what we have left? See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And all of God's people said... Amen. So here's where we're going this morning. I've titled this message, Good Enough. Good Enough. And the big idea is that Jesus is the only Savior who is good enough to bring us salvation and satisfy our hearts. And He will reward us for the things that we give up to follow Him. Jesus is the only Savior who is good enough to bring us salvation and satisfy our hearts, and He will reward us for the good, for the things that we give up to follow Him. And so first, let's look at this, this, uh, this rich young ruler and how he approaches Jesus. By the way, this story is in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's repeated. Okay, there's just a few minor elements that are different in each one of them, a few minor details. But when you when you combine the three together, 
you discover that this guy was rich, that he was young, and that he was a ruler. He was probably a ruler of a synagogue. So he had, from a worldly perspective, he had it going on. All right? Dads, those of you dads who have daughters old enough to marry, this was probably the kind of guy that you would want. He was rich, young, and he had responsibility. Ideally, on the surface, a lot of dads, I think here as Christian men, we want, we want more than that. But a typical dad would have been, it would be pleased to have a young man like this who has money, who's responsible, who seems to have good character. He seems to be a man of integrity. To approach his daughter. He approaches Jesus. He comes to Jesus. And by the way, this is right after we talked about last week. Jesus, Jesus talked about receiving children. We talked about that last week, how the disciples, uh, parents were trying to bring their kids to Jesus and the disciples were trying to stop them from bringing their kids to Jesus. And Jesus gets upset. He gets angry that they would block Children from experiencing his love and his goodness and his blessing. And he said, don't hinder them. Let them come. And actually, he used it again as an opportunity to teach them that unless you become like children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, as he said in one place. Or here in, in, in Mark 10, he said, unless you um, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you receive it. Unless you receive the kingdom of God like children, you will not Enter in it. And we talked about last week about receiving children, not only receiving and loving and affirming and embracing children that are around us, but also being being like children who receive the kingdom of God in humble dependence. And so here we have a contrast. We have a contrast of somebody who seems to have some blockage from him receiving the kingdom in humble dependence. And we discover in this story that the wealth that he possesses is the major blockage. But he comes with this question to Jesus and he, and he addresses him as good teacher. What must I do? To inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus seems a bit harsh when you read this story on the surface. Like, I mean, I wonder what the disciples were thinking. Okay, this guy went away sorrowful because of Jesus' response to this guy. Jesus called, he challenged him to give up everything. I wonder if, this, if some of the disciples were thinking, man, this guy would be great on our team. You know, he's a responsible ruler, uh, has lots of wealth. Man, let him join the crew, right? But Jesus didn't say, hey, come on in, man. He had this challenge for him. And, and the very first thing that he does is he addresses this young man's understanding of good. He addresses Jesus as good teacher, okay? Good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what's, what's going on here? What's going on here? Is Jesus denying the reality that he is divine, that he is the son of God, that, that he is uh, fully God and fully man? Is he trying to communicate that? Certainly not. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Right? And, and so 
he addresses this, this man's understanding of what good is. Okay? And, and, and good is to be attributed ultimately to God. God is the one who is worthy of that description and that address. And perhaps this guy was, was being flattering in addressing Jesus as good teacher. Or perhaps he just has a superficial understanding of what good really is. And so Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now he came with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he seems to be implying, am I good enough or can I be good enough to inherit eternal life? What do I got to do? Just tell me. Here's a rich guy who probably knows how to make stuff happen. He knows how to be responsible. He knows how to discipline himself and do something. Do something. This guy had status. He had possessions. He had um, a position in the world. And so he's approaching Jesus like, tell me what to do to inherit eternal life. Now, one, he's approaching the right person for the for, for with his question. All right? But Jesus has to address his understanding first of good. Wayne Grudem in the ESV study Bible notes, he says, no one is good except God alone directs the ruler's attention to God in whom ultimate goodness resides. Only in understanding God as infinitely good can he discover that good deeds cannot earn eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I find this uh, over the years, over the 22 years of being a Christian, having hundreds of gospel conversations over the years, I've found that one of the most common answers that people have when I ask them, if you were to die, where do you think you would go? A lot of people will say, I'm going to heaven. And if, and follow that up with the next question. If, if God were to ask you why you would go to heaven, what would you say? And I try to do that very lovingly and graciously and kind. And most people will say, I'm a good person. I'm not that bad. I've never killed anybody. I've heard people say that. I've never committed adultery. You know, I'm not that bad. I'm really, I'm really not that bad compared to like the Hitlers. And the Saddam Husseins and all, you know, all those other crazy guys out there. I'm really not that bad. There's always going to be somebody that we can compare ourselves with to make us feel better about ourselves. But other sinners in the world aren't the standard of holiness and goodness and righteousness. God is. And that's what Jesus has already said, right? God is good. Um, and his standard of good, Jesus then confronts him with God's standard of good. Good means to be morally excellent. And so this guy is approaching Jesus with this mindset that if I just do good enough, if I just obey the Bible, obey the law, just tell me which commandments, tell me what to do, and I'll do it so that I can have eternal life. And so Jesus rolls with it. And he brings the law to him. He, he uses it as a mirror, if you will. The, the law is like a mirror. It shows us, Paul says that it, it brings the knowledge of sin to us. 
It helps us see what sin is. But you never use a mirror to wipe your face, do you? It's not designed for that. The mirror is not made to clean you. It just helps you see yourself as you are. And so Jesus takes the mirror of the Ten Commandments. And he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Now, which commandment is that? Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Theologians uh, say that th- that probably do not defraud is probably a combination of s- a commandment 9 and 10. Or nine, 8 and 9. Don't steal and don't lie. Right? Don't Don't steal and lie to to get wealth from people. And typically the mindset for for many for many people there's a view that that anybody who's rich has got their wealth, they've attained their wealth by trampling the people below them. They've done some people wrong to get the wealth that they do have. That's a that's a common view. And many see wealthy people they they see if you're if you have wealth that you're unjust because you're holding on to it because you have it and not giving it away to the poor. And so there's also the other view, and I'll get to that in a minute, um, about the Jews seeing that as a sign of God's favor and blessing if you have lots of it. But anyhow, Jesus confronts him with God's standard of good, the Ten Commandments, and he just mentions a few of them. And he responds with teacher all these I've kept from my youth. Now Jesus just gave them the, the, the latter half from, from five to, to nine in the Ten Commandments, right? There's still more. And he doesn't do what he does. Jesus doesn't take the time to explain like he does in the Sermon on the Mount. Like in, it, where Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks to lust commits adultery in, the, in his heart. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't expound on the, the spirit of the law like he does in, in Matthew 5 where he says, if you, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I say if you're angry with your brother, you're in danger, in danger of judgment. He doesn't expound on it, and he could, but Jesus knows right where to speak to the heart in every person. And I love how Jesus didn't have a canned approach, by the way. Like he, he, he ministered to everyone differently based on where they were god gives grace to the humble but he opposes the proud and with broken sinful people who are humbled and broken in their lives and are in shambles and they know they just need mercy and grace jesus meets them with lots of mercy and grace but then with the with the self-sufficient the independent, the self-righteous, those who think they got it all together, Jesus brings the law here, right? He brings the law, he he confronts self-righteousness with the holy standard of God's law. But this guy thinks that he's kept it, that he, like Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, he was blameless, According to the law, blameless. Now, was the Apostle Paul righteous before God by keeping the law? Certainly not. Because in that same passage in Philippians chapter 3, he said, not having a form of righteousness that comes through the law, but but that which comes through faith in Jesus. 
faith in Jesus. The Apostle Paul realized he had been persecuting the church, that he was formerly a murderer, a blasphemer. But God had mercy on him. So this, this rich young ruler, in essence, is saying what I've heard dozens of people say over the years. I'm a good person. I'm, and, and this, and this seems to be the basis of why he thinks he'll be alright. I'm a good person. I've, I've kept it. So just tell me if, if there's some other ones I need to do. Just tell me what to do. Hans F. Bayer says that from a human perspective, his answer is plausible. However, once the righteousness of God sheds light on the human condition, human righteousness is seen to be no more than a thin cover-up for mankind's basic hostility towards God. Okay? So, this guy, the rich young ruler, says, from my youth, I've kept these commands that you're talking about here. Probably from his bar mitzvah. 12 or 13, as a young Jewish boy, enters into a season of life where he becomes responsible for obeying the Torah, learning the Torah and obeying the Torah. And he seems to have done a pretty good job, at least from his standards and by the standards of Judaism of the day. But Jesus wants his heart. And he knows how to go for the heart like a heart surgeon. He knows to to cut where a person needs to be cut, to take out the blockage and the cancerous infection where it needs to be taken out. Notice Jesus' response. And Jesus looking at him, I love this, and Jesus looking at him loved him. Now take note of this. Because here we see the love of Jesus in action. Lest you think Jesus is being unloving or harsh in how he's dealing with this rich young ruler. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And out of love, Jesus spoke the truth to this young man who thought that he was good enough to inherit eternal life. To achieve eternal life. To merit eternal life. Who thought that he could do something. For salvation. And Jesus said. You lack one thing. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And follow me. Wow. What what a What a challenge. What a call. What a radical call. Now we don't see Jesus using this exact same call and charge to every one of the the people that he meets. Like his followers did forsake and leave everything to follow him. But we don't see Jesus telling everybody to empty their bank accounts. If you want to follow me, empty your bank account. Right? But he does call every one of his followers... To give him their highest allegiance. To, to, to make him priority in their lives. To allow him to be Lord and Savior over every area of their lives. And so Jesus calls this guy out. He says, you lack one thing. There's just one thing, okay? These commandments, Jesus didn't even bother with going into the nitty gritty of, well, if you look to lust, you committed adultery. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't even go there. He, but he challenged him 
with the essence of the very first commandment and the tenth commandment. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not covet or be greedy with what you have. And so his challenge to this young man sends him away sorry, sorrowful, sad. Well, actually, he his he chooses that in the moment. And like I said, Jesus is a great heart surgeon who knows where to cut, precisely where to cut, and precisely what cancerous, sinful, destructive element is in us that needs to be cut out and taken out. And for this guy, it was the love of money. It was materialism. His security and identity was so wrapped up in what he had that he wasn't able to let it go. And Jesus knew that his possessions had possession of him. Jesus knew that this would be the blockage. This would be the main thing that would keep him from following him. And he calls him out on it. And he says, give it up. Give it up. Sell, give it to the poor. Okay? That's, that's a loving thing to do. Come follow me. Now, if Jesus wasn't the son of God, if, if Jesus wasn't divine, this would be a crazy ask for anybody. Go sell everything and come follow me. This would be crazy. If Jesus wasn't offering something better than what his possessions and riches offered in this life, this would be a crazy ask. But Jesus was offering something better. He was offering eternal life. Jesus was offering hope and purpose. Jesus was offering an entrance to the kingdom of God. And in essence, in Jesus' call to, to, to give up everything, to let go of the idols that he was grasping onto and follow him, Jesus was calling him to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Let go of those things that are keeping you away from God. Away from me, Jesus seems to be saying, come follow me. This requires repentance, and this requires faith, and that's how we experience the kingdom of God. We come as children. We receive the kingdom as children. We, we let go, and we trust God, and we receive what he has for us. Verse 22, this guy was disheartened. He was by the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions these possessions had a grip on him and he wasn't willing to part with them for him it would have meant giving up his identity for him it would have meant giving up his security for for him it would have meant even even his status of of how he's viewed by those around him the 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 typical jewish person saw riches and wealth as god's special blessing and favor on a person's life. Many Jews had bought into the prosperity message. In the Old Testament. And Jesus turns that on its head. Craig Bloomberg says that that man went away sad. 
that the man went away sad demonstrates the accuracy of Jesus' diagnosis and the unwillingness of the man to accept the prescribed treatment for his failings. Jesus gave him a diagnosis. There's one thing that you lack. And he gave him a prescription. Go sell it all. You'll have treasure in heaven. Follow me. But he wasn't willing to take the prescription. And so what this points to, saints, is, is the reality that, that with great wealth comes great dangers. There's a great trap that comes with having much money. Because there's a tendency for those who have much to put their trust in the riches as a functional savior. There's a tendency to trust money, to look to money. And so Jesus goes on and he says, he looked at his disciples and he said, how difficult it'll be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult. Why? Because money can have such a strong grip on the human heart that it blocks one from following God. And his disciples were amazed at this words, at these words, at his words. And he said to them, children, how difficult it'll be to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, over the years, there's been people who have tried to water this down and say something like, well, you know, the, the, the needle, there was a gate that was like a needle and the camel, you know, would have to bend down and, and humble itself and go through. It just, it's kind of a ridiculous, way to do some gymnastics, mental gymnastics, and explain away the impossibility of what Jesus is describing here. The camel was the largest animal in the the eastern, uh, in the first century in, 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 in the east, in the Middle East, right? And the needle was like one of the smallest little elements, so to try to fit the largest animal through one of the smallest holes was impossible, right? And that's the point Jesus is trying to make. With man, it is impossible. Salvation is impossible. If a person, if a human being is trying to achieve it by what they do. It's like trying to throw a baseball from here to China. Give it a shot. Won't work. I have told people over the years that if you're trusting in your good works to get you to heaven, it's like trusting a parachute that's been packed by the devil and jumping out of an airplane. It's not going to go well for you. We cannot be saved by our good deeds. Nobody is good enough. But Jesus is good enough. He's our Savior. And with God, it's possible to be saved. With man, we can't save ourselves. It's impossible. And so we must thrust ourselves upon the grace and the mercy of God and receive the kingdom like little children in humble dependence and faith. First Timothy in First Timothy 6, the apostle Paul describes the danger of wealth and he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Think about Judas, 
by the way, in light of this. And so we see that there are great dangers with wealth. And by the way, if <clears throat> if the Apostle Paul thought that every Christian was to empty their bank accounts if they're going to follow Jesus, then he would have addressed it in 1 Timothy 6 when he was charging the rich. He told Timothy, he charged, he said, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes in uncertainty of riches, in the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God gets glory when we enjoy what we do have. But he also gets glory, verse 18, when we they are to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take a hold of that which truly is life. You see, riches are deceitful. Money can be deceitful. The deceitfulness of riches chokes out the life of God's word in us, if we're not careful. And it promises much, but delivers so little. I mean, just think about the, the, the rich and the famous, the, the celebrities that, that seem to have it all. Houses that are millions of dollars. And they could go on any vacations they want and, 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 and eat at any restaurants they want. But, but how many of those celebrities and rich and famous people are just empty inside. They get all that. They get to experience all that. But they're missing out on true life. So there's a danger with wealth that Jesus warned about, that the Apostle Paul warned about. One of the things that Tim Keller points out about Jesus in this passage is the reality that Jesus was the ultimate Rich young ruler, the true rich young ruler. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus wasn't asking this rich young ruler to do something he hadn't done himself already. Jesus left the glories of heaven, the comforts and the privileges of heaven, and he came down into this broken, dark world. And he came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And he's the only way to salvation. He's the only way to find purpose and significance. He's the only way to God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And the Apostle Paul points that, that Jesus gave up these riches. He left. Though he was rich, he became poor for you and I. So that we might experience the riches of heaven. So Peter asked this question after Jesus explains how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And in essence, he's saying, well, what about us? We've, we've left it all, right? P Peter wants to know, well, what do we get? 
You know, we're because we we've laid it all down to follow you. You're worth it. Right? And then Jesus promises reward. He said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house, house, brothers, sisters, mother or father, children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive it now a hundredfold. Now in this life, houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life for many who will be first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus promises reward for those who give up, those who make sacrifice to follow him. William Lane says this, God takes nothing away from a man without restoring it to him in a new and glorious form. Okay? So does this teach a prosperity theology that all Christians are going to have lots of wealth and be rich with earthly riches in this life? I think not. I think there are Christians that God blesses with much financially, but every Christian who is truly a Christian has the riches of heaven. They've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. They've been brought into a family. They've been brought into a community of faith. And so mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and houses and lands... Theologians point to that being uh, the, the, the community of faith, the family of God. I love that we could go to India, to some small village in India, and find family members who are part of the family of God, our brothers and sisters who share the same faith in Jesus Christ. I love that we can go to a small village in Africa and find brothers and sisters who we are family with. We can go to any continent of the world and find brothers and sisters. And so there are truly rewards for those who've given up to follow Jesus, who've made sacrifices. And in this context... Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Many who have all the privileges and the wealth and the riches now, like this rich young ruler, who are first now, they'll be last. And the last will be first. The disciples who've chosen to give up those things would experience God's blessing and God's reward. And notice that he says in verse 30, with persecutions. That comes with the package. Following Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecutions. Persecution. And so let me, let me close here in for asking the question, how do you know your money is, is not just money to you? And this is taken from Tim Keller's Jesus is King. He gives us three, three things to consider here. When you, when you can't give large amounts of it away. When you get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. Or when you see people who are doing better than you, even though you might have worked harder or might be a better person, it gets under your skin. That's when money is not just money to you. Okay, he goes on and he says, and when this, when that happens, you have one foot in the trap. 
Because it's no longer just a tool, it's a scorecard. It's the, the scorecard. It's your essence, your identity. No matter how much money you have, though it's not intrinsically evil, it has incredible power to keep you from God. Remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 that you can't serve God and money. So he said, store up treasures in heaven. Invest. Invest in heaven where it can't be taken away from you. Where you don't have to worry about the stock market crashing or the the real estate uh, values going down. Store it up in heaven by being generous. By giving it away. And throughout history, Christianity has done this. Christianity has used power and wealth to serve the weak and bless the poor. And here at City Church, that's what we want to do. With the position, the power, the resources, the possessions that God has entrusted to us as good stewards of those, we want to give towards those in need. We want to serve those who are weak and in need. And show the love of Christ. This rich young ruler thought he was good and thought he could be good enough. But when he realized what Jesus was calling him to, he went away sorrowful. Because it was more than he was willing to give up. It was more that he was willing to do. Actually, it was impossible for him to do enough to get eternal life. He needed to trust God who can do the impossible, just like each one of us have to do. And every one of us who are Christians, we have done that. And so let me close with just three points here. First, put your trust in Christ alone for salvation. If, if you're, you're pointing to something good about you that's gonna get you in the heaven, then you may be trusting in that parachute that's been packed by the devil. Trust in Christ alone. Put your trust in Him. He's the only Savior good enough. It's okay that we're not good enough because Jesus is good enough and we get His righteousness when we put our faith in Him and we trust in Him alone. He makes us righteous. We're declared righteous. And this leads to us living godly and righteous lives. Not because we're trying to work for salvation. But rather we've already been given salvation. And we're working out our salvation. With fear and trembling. As Paul exhorted in Philippians 2. 11 and 12. So put your your trust in Christ alone for salvation. For significance. And for satisfaction. Your happiness your purpose, your meaning in life. Look to Jesus. If you're looking to anything else or anyone else, you're going to be sorry. You're going to be disappointed. The the, the choice is everlasting joy and happiness in the life to come, but also in this life, (laughs) joy inexpressible and full of glory or or sorrow. Psalm 16.4 says, those who chase after other gods will be filled with sorrow. Those who chase after other gods will be filled with sorrow. Here's what happened with this rich young ruler. His money was his God. And he went away sorrowful. 
right? God knows that he's the only person in the entire universe that you can give all your love, all your affection, all your trust, all your hope, give him your heart, everything. And he's the only one who won't break your heart and disappoint you and let you down. He's the only one who can rightfully take all that devotion, all that allegiance, all that affection, and not crush your heart into pieces. You give it to anything else or anyone else fully like that, and you're going to get hurt, you're going to get broken, and you're going to get disappointed. And so it's right for for him to ask for everything from us. Because he's given everything for us. Christ has given his life. Commit to giving Jesus your highest allegiance and devotion. And then be assured that you will be rewarded for faithfulness. God sees your faithfulness. He's not unjust to forget your labor of love, your work of faith. He sees you. And in due season, you will reap if you don't lose heart. I just want to give an invitation for anybody who's here that during this time you sense that you've been trusting in your own goodness or you haven't been trusting in Jesus alone for salvation and you'd like to make that shift today. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has prompted you and is tugging on your heart to take that step, to abandon self-righteousness to abandon self-sufficiency, to abandon putting your trust in all these other functional saviors that aren't going to deliver, that aren't going to, to fulfill on their promise. So if you guys would bow your head in prayer, and if that's you, would you just, would you just slip your hand up and indicate that you feel like that's you and, and you're ready to take that step in trusting Jesus today? If there's anybody here, Psalm 19. Verse 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless of, blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock, and my redeemer. And so, Lord, we we pray that for ourselves, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, that our lives would align with you, both externally and internally, with your will and your way, and it truly would be our joy to say, not mine, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us away from the trap that wealth presents and that all the the glitter of this world presents us. Deliver us from that and lead us into your way everlasting. In Christ's name we pray.